This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes Store, the Google Play Store, or on the Podbean app. You can find more Thanks for Sharing at www.thanksforsharingpodcast.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash healingpaths. That's paths with an S. Hey everyone, welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm Jackie P, and I'm going to be hosting this podcast by myself today. Uh, John is out sick. Um, So I wanted to uh, talk today a little bit more about some of the um, outcomes of living in a dysfunctional family. And I'll probably share a little bit more of my own personal story and my family of origin stuff in this episode than I think I've shared before on this podcast. But I wanted to start... Because I think sometimes we overlook, I think oftentimes we overlook the things that in our family that didn't happen, but should have. And I think that's so hard to maybe put our finger on or anything that, so so that's one area. The other area is things that were maybe more covert. So they weren't overt. It wasn't obvious. Maybe everyone in the family didn't know that this was happening. Maybe there were some secrets around it. And I wanted to talk about, you know, some of the things like the ACA book talks about, like three rules um, of growing up in a dysfunctional family or an addiction family is don't feel, don't trust, and don't talk. And for me, when I was doing my um, ACA work and stuff, I, I often would add to that don't see. And I feel like in some ways, um, I still struggle with this sometimes. I, I grew up in a home where we really couldn't see what was happening. Even though it was playing out right before us, and I think I've mentioned before, I I saw a lot in my family. Um, I think the role that I played in my family put me in a position of seeing more than maybe my other siblings did. And I think I would just be aware of it. And so I, I became an expert at seeing and not seeing at the same time because it wasn't allowed for me to see it, right? Or it wasn't allowed if I did see it, um, I couldn't talk about it. And I couldn't feel anything about it, even if I did. Um, And so what was the point of seeing it in the first place? And I think sometimes as we're doing recovery, there comes a point, probably in later recovery, where we have to start going back and understanding what we saw and didn't see at the same time. So we may have seen some of our family's dysfunction, but we also couldn't see it. Like that was that family rule, right? That what happened in our home stayed in our home and we never talked about it and we weren't that family. And so we saw it and then we quickly unsaw it. And if, if this describes you or somebody that you know and they're like me or you're like me, that trait kind of follows you into adulthood where I, I would say I became pretty observant as a young child, but there's also that like I observe a lot of things, I have thoughts, I have feelings, Um, I have ideas about what I see, and at the same time, I cannot trust what I just saw, what I just felt, what I just thought, what I just saw, right? So I I think that can also work against us, and we have to become aware of those processes that allowed us in childhood to survive. It allowed us in childhood to function, right, to get up and go to school or to, to do whatever we needed to do, those rules and, and not seeing those things or not talking or not trusting or not feeling. All of those things helped us survive in the dysfunctional family that we were living in. But at some point, those traits stop working in our behalf and they actually can start working against us. And I think that can be some of the scarier work of 
recovery. I think it can be some of the harder work, right? Because we want to believe that that just can stay in the past or that I I got this far in my life by not really seeing or trusting or feeling or talking. And can't that just continue, right, until the grave? And, And the answer is no, like not without some costs that come to our relationships, to us, to the quality of life that we live. So I wanted to read this part This is from Childhood Disrupted, which is a great book. If you haven't heard about it or haven't checked it out, highly recommend this book. It's by Donna Jackson Nakazawa. And again, it's called Childhood Disrupted. And listen to this subtitle. I think this subtitle is amazing. Childhood Disrupted, How Your Biography Becomes Your Biology and How You Can Heal. So she, in this book, also gets into the physical impacts that our childhood has on us. She gets into talking about the ACE, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Assessment, as well as one we don't hear much about, the Childhood Trauma Questionnaire. This one is used for maybe uh, some of the things, more of the subtle forms of the childhood abuse that we might have experienced or the neglect that we experienced. Okay, so she talks about this. She says, chronic parental discord, enduring low-dose humiliation or blame and shame, chronic teasing, the quiet divorce between two secretly seething parents, a parent's premature exit from a child's life, the emotional scars of growing up with a hypercritical, unsteady, narcissistic, bipolar, alcoholic, addicted, or depressed parent, physical or emotional abuse or neglect. These happen in all too many families. Increasingly, it's understood that non-family stressors in childhood can also affect our adult health. These include early medical trauma, being bullied or hazed, living amid neighborhood violence. Although the details of individual experiences of adversity differ from one home to another and from one neighborhood to another, they are all precursors to the same organic chemical changes deep in the gray matter of the developing brain. As Folletti, who was one of the developers of the ACE assessment, as Folletti observes, the years of infancy and childhood are not lost, but like a child's footprint in wet cement, lifelong. Or as T.S. Eliot wrote in Four, Quartet, in Four Quartets, in my beginning is my end. So I, I think we have to look at uh, these, what we would maybe call the small T's, the little T's. And yes, they're not, they're not the big T's, and they're not big T's for a reason. But disease develops for many reasons, including the lifestyle, our genetics, our environmental toxics, and our diet. So we're, we don't become ill in our adulthood just because of the things that happened in our childhood, but they do play a significant role in adult childhood, in our adult illnesses, in our in adult lives. And, and so I think this is why we've got to give them the credit that they deserve or the credit that they are having, the impact that they're having in our life for these things that we oftentimes minimize, look past, and, and don't really look at. I also want to pull from the big book, the ACA big book. So this is, this is in chapter six, um, how it works, how the ACA works. And a couple of the things, it talks about the ACA program, right? So some of the things that we're doing in the ACA program is we're moving out of isolation. We're learning to feel our feelings. We're reparenting ourselves. And then we're finding wholeness, right? And, and sometimes that includes finding wholeness through separation of some of those critical um, little T relationships in our families. And I think that can be healthy for us. I think the return of feeling can be a really difficult stage of our of our healing and of our recovery and I think there's a lot of people who will just try to skip over this or to just move past this 
and maybe intellectually feel the feelings, which, by the way, doesn't really work, or to just quickly move past, like, oh, I felt some sadness. Oh, that makes me feel sad. And I kind of say that on an intellectual basis, and I just move past that. And I think there's some rich work for us to be done as we start to really feel our feelings and to tell the story of what we saw but couldn't see and what we felt but couldn't felt and we're talking about what we couldn't talk about right and we do that all at the same time I remember um, with my father I think I've mentioned before maybe just in the first episode my father had multiple addictions but I did not know that it was very covert it was very hidden Um, I grew up in an LDS or Mormon family and you know there's a lot of things that if you are aware of Mormons or have ever known some Mormons there's some things about the religion that you just don't do so I grew up thinking right that Mormons can't have addictions which is not true but that was my like Mormons aren't going to be alcoholics right because Mormons don't drink and Mormons aren't going to have a smoking addiction because Mormons don't smoke and we're not supposed to gamble and all of these things right that go along with the religion and those were some of my dad's main uh, main addictions right he had a gambling addiction he I would say he was an alcoholic and um, he had a smoking addiction and a chewing tobacco addiction and probably I mean I'm thinking maybe a sex addiction I think I think my mom thought he had that but all all of this stuff right I wasn't learning until after the death of my parents or or some of that I learned at my father's funeral which is not a great time to have some of these things confirmed and so I remember when I was a teenager like maybe I was too young to drive because occasionally my dad would drive our school carpool if my mom couldn't and I hated I hated when my dad drove the carpool but I remember it was um, one of these days that he drove the carpool and my dad was in the like car selling business and so his car was often like what he drove from the lot or the dealership and so usually his car was nicer than my mom's but it always had this smell of cigarette smoke and you know as a kid as I'm developing and I'm thinking I don't really understand why like when you have a car lot of cars to choose from like why would you choose the car that smells like cigarette smoke especially like if you've never smoked and so you know as I was developing and my mind's putting things together I think I was around 13 or 14 and I thought to myself well maybe my dad does smoke like because and and here's another thing I mean to my credit right I'm not completely oblivious like I didn't I didn't hug my dad like we did not have physical affection I I don't really I'm trying to think about I don't really ever remember physically hugging my dad um, and and so it's not like I was really close to him like to you know smell I mean cigarette something cigarette smoke is something that you can smell and I never certainly would never be close to like his mouth area like we never kissed or something like that that I would um, smell that on him and so but you know I'm just kind of trying to put some things together and I thought well maybe maybe my dad does smoke I don't I don't know like I didn't have anything concrete that I can remember that made me one day ask my dad and I asked my dad I just simply said dad do you smoke and like it was the wrong question to ask right like he was so offended he was just 
beside himself and he was really kind of upset with me that I could even ask that, that I could think that. There was a lot of shaming that was going on with my question. There clearly was a lot of gaslighting that was going on when I asked him that question. And I just, I I mean, I didn't really have that relationship where my dad and I talked or I really asked a lot of questions. So I just thought, well, okay, I asked it. That's his answer. Done. And so fast forward, I was like maybe 37 and again, my parents were divorced by this time. My parents divorced when I was like 23, 24, something like that. And after that, I didn't really have a lot of contact with my dad. Um, When he married his third wife, she really wanted to have contact with the, well, I should clarify that. I said she really wanted to have contact with the kids. What that meant is she wanted some contact with the kids. And what that looked like in reality is at Christmas time, we got together with her and my dad. And pretty much that was all. And and they would say things like, I always had this concern that like at the end of our getting together, right, she may say, or he may say, this is so great because they would, and we should do this more often, right? And I was kind of like, oh, like once a year for an hour or two is really enough for me. But every year what they would say, you know, we'd have all of us as siblings, we'd get together, we'd go out, we'd visit them. They didn't live far from where we were. And at the end of that, they'd talk about how great this was, how much they enjoyed visiting with us, and then they'd say, can't wait to do that next year. So there really wasn't a push for much more than a relationship. But prior to him marrying his third wife, I didn't see him really ever. So, you know, I'm 37 years old. Um, We're getting together at Christmas time. My dad had left me a voicemail. And at the time, I I even had my husband listen to it because I was like, what is going on? Like, either he's, like his speech, I, I, I remember thinking he's either very intoxicated or something's going on because you could hardly understand him on my voicemail. So I called him and, you know, we arranged the time that we were going to get together. And so we got together that year and I remember saying to him, like, he just wasn't talking well. And I said to him, like, Dad, what's like, what's going on with your voice? And like, what's happening there? And he said, well, his wife said, oh, I think he has a really bad sinus infection. And I was like, okay, like, that's a really bad sinus infection then. And I said, well, have you got a doctor's appointment? And his wife had said, we're, we're getting into the doctor. Yes, we're getting into the doctor. So maybe fast forward to kind of springtime got a call from my stepmom and she said um, that he had gotten into the doctor and they had taken you know pictures and everything of what was going on and that he had a doctor's appointment up at the Huntsman Institute which in Salt Lake is the like that's the cancer hospital that's kind of what it's known for and that he had an appointment he was supposed to take this stuff but my his wife at the time did not drive had never had a driver's license and didn't drive and and so uh my dad was calling to say i need you to take me to this doctor's appointment and i might have shared this before where i was just like no like i'm not doing that well i'll go through that because i think i've shared that before and i did end up taking him um, to that doctor's appointment and we're sitting in the like back in the patient room right waiting for the doctor to come in and um, his doctor had sent the pictures or whatever that they had taken had already sent those over and so you know we're just sitting in the room not really talking because we don't have that relationship and um, the doctor walks in and he looks at my dad and he says how long have you been a smoker and I'm like 
ooh, I'm going to get out of the way here because that question doesn't go well with my dad. But my dad just looked at the doctor and said, since I was 14. And the doctor asked him how many packs he smoked a day. And my dad said several. And I was just like sitting there going, okay, okay. Like I, I had seen something and I had put dots together, but I was, you know, told that those dots didn't belong together. But I, it was kind of this odd moment of sitting there in that doctor's office and just kind of like thinking, you were right. Like your 14 year old self was right. She had figured this out, the secret, right? So as we leave, I get my dad back to his house. I'm driving home. I'm calling my siblings, which I have five siblings. There's six of us. And I'm calling them and I'm saying to them like, hey, so dad has stage four throat cancer. And by the way, um, dad acknowledged that he's been a daily smoker since he was 14 years old. And none of my siblings were too surprised. In fact, several of them said to me, I thought so. And I was like, what do you mean? You know, and they would say, I asked dad when I was a teenager, I asked dad and he told me for sure that he wasn't, but I always wondered which was, which had been my experience. Now, when I called my mom, my parents had been divorced for, you know, some time, more than 10 years at this point. So I called my mom and, you know, just said, Hey, this is what's going on. Told her my mom was shocked. Like my mom was like, you're kidding and I was just kind of like, I mean, you know, the, the last decade maybe of my parents' marriage, they were not affectionate at all. They slept in separate bedrooms. But they had six kids together, right? And they had spent years sleeping in the same bed. And so I'm thinking, I mean, I never kissed my dad, but like my mom did. And I didn't really hug my dad, but like my mom had at some point. And it's not like he said that he had quit for a period of time. And so, you know, I just was kind of like, I mean, I I get maybe why I would have been a little bit surprised, even though I wasn't necessarily surprised, but I was surprised that my mom had no idea. And that's what she had said. Like, I had no idea because I told her like, well, dad said he's been smoking since he was 14. And she just said, I had no idea. So fast forward, my dad passes away. um, And I don't mean to sound glib or like not feel things over that, but that's a different story. So fast forward and we're at my dad's funeral. And, you know, at the time, like us as kids, we were like, do we need a funeral? Like, we don't even know whose dad's friends are. Like, does he even have friends? Um, His wife didn't have like a, a large family and she wasn't really on speaking terms with her family. And so we were kind of like, and, you know, there was no life insurance. There was not like, as kids, we were having to pay for this. But his wife insisted like, no, he has to have, he has to have a funeral and like the whole nine yards. And even though like she wasn't paying for anything, but we were like, Oh, okay. So we went along with it. We're planning it. Um, like we literally like, you know, we kind of said to her, like, can you find somebody to speak at this funeral that like he worked with? Like, we don't even know those people. And so she said that she would. And so as siblings, but she wanted one of us to speak. And so as siblings, I, the way I remember it, we literally drew straws as to who would speak at the funeral. And one of my younger brothers drew the straw and and he was going to speak at the funeral. And, you know, and he was saying, I'm going to need help. I'm going to need stories like, you know, and so he had, he lived in Arizona at the time. And so he had emailed us all and was like, I just need stories that I can like use at the funeral. And 
apparently like a week went by and none of us had responded. So then he sent another email and he was like, they don't need to be good stories. Like they don't need to be, you know, endearing stories. Just give me a story. Like I can make something of any story. Um, and so it, like it was difficult for us. And so, um, we went to the funeral. My dad's mom was still alive at the time, although she had a lot of dementia. But when my parents divorced, um, she had just really cut us out, uh, like had no contact with us and just cut us out of her life. And so we hadn't really seen her. Um, and I don't know that, I don't know how much she remembered us um, at the funeral. And, and most of the people there, like, I just didn't even know any of them. But uh, my dad's friend got up, or his work person, I don't know how friendly they were, but his work, um, the person he knew from work, got up to speak. And I was sitting in the audience, you know, with next to my husband. And I remember he started out and he said, anybody who knew Mike McAdams knew that he loved four things. And I remember thinking at the time, like, I don't know what those four things are. And thinking, well, this will be good. Like, I'll learn some things about my dad kind of sad that it's at his funeral, but okay. He said, anybody who knew Mike knew that Mike loved cars. And, you know, I'm like, okay, yeah. I mean, my dad, like I said, spent most of his adult life in the car dealership. That's like, that's where he worked. So it's like, okay. And then he said, and secondly, um, Mike loved Wendover. And I was kind of like, oh, I didn't know that. And he went on and was kind of talking about how most days before my dad got to work, um, he would get up early and he'd drive to Wendover and spend a little while there before he had to be into the dealership. And I'm sitting there thinking that and I'm, or I'm hearing this and I'm thinking, oh, that makes so much sense because my dad um, would get up. He, he was out of the house by like 6 a.m. in the morning, right? And then he would get home maybe around 11, 11.30. And that was like pretty much Monday through Saturday. And then Sunday, the, the dealership were closed. And so he was home on Sunday. And that was like hell being with my dad on Sunday. And then we'd start the week over again. And I remember I was probably, I was a little bit older, like maybe 16 or 17. And I remember, I didn't ask my dad this time, but I went to my mom and I asked her, and, you know, because you're kind of figuring out how the world works. And I had had this thought one day, like, who goes and buys a car at like 630 in the morning? Like, because my dad leaves at six to go to work. And so he'd be there by like, for sure by 630. But who's buying cars at 630 in the morning, right? And so I kind of asked my mom this question. And she, I just remember she just kind of dismissed it and didn't want to talk about it and told me that he worked hard. And I was just kind of like, oh, okay, but like, that seems kind of odd to me. And then when I was at college, so I was probably about 19, one of my dad's stepbrothers, um, which I, I kind of knew him, but I might see him maybe once a year, but maybe not. And he lived in a different state. And I remember, so he was um, in town where I was going to college and it, it, there had been a big snowstorm, which where I was going to college, we didn't really have snowstorms very often. And so we'd had the snowstorm. And so pretty much the town was shut down and he couldn't leave. He was going to go up to Salt Lake and visit my grandma, my dad's mom. And so I guess he talked to my grandma. My parents were still married at this point. 
And so he taught, he had called my grandma and told her that he was going to be delayed because he was stuck and he couldn't get out. And my grandma mentioned that I was going to college there and gave him my phone number. And so this uncle called me up and was like, hey, I'm in town and, you know, with the snowstorm, I'm not going anywhere. Can I pick you up and we can go to dinner? And, you know, I'd never been like one-on-one with this uncle. I didn't really know him, but I was a poor college student. So I'm like, yeah, you want to buy me dinner? I'm on. So he took me to like this really nice steakhouse in, in the city and, um, and we were talking and I remember him asking me some questions that it took me really into my adult years I think he was trying to make me see some things that he either knew about my dad or suspected about my dad. Um, And one of those, you know, and he would talk to me about just how much my family struggled financially. Um, And this uncle did not struggle financially at all. But he had talked to me about, like, how many hours does your dad work a day? And how much do you think he gets paid? And, like, basically like where do you think the money's going to because like if he is working if if he's working this many hours and he's getting paid about this which somebody at his age should probably get paid even on the lower end like should you guys be struggling this much and my mom was a school teacher right so but I remember at the time just thinking I can't do anything with this like I've asked both my mom and dad questions I get nowhere like I can't do anything with this information so I just kind of put it on the shelf right I just tucked it away and almost kind of forgot about it but all of this is coming up as I'm sitting at my dad's funeral and thinking that's why he left the house at 6 a.m like people don't buy cars at 6 30 in the morning you don't have to be at a car dealership that early and so and that's why we weren't making as much money as my uncle was kind of suggesting that we probably should have. So I'm putting that all together. So the second thing that was really important that that Mike McAdams loved was Wendover. And then he said, and the third thing that Mike McAdams loved was a good cup of coffee. Well, I didn't know that, right? Like if you know Mormons, Mormons don't drink coffee. And my dad pretended to be a Mormon, right? I mean, I think even as kids, all of us knew he didn't pretend very well to be a Mormon. But like, I'd never seen him with a cup of coffee. So again, that was just one of those that I was kind of like, oh, okay. And then he said, and then the fourth thing Mike McAdams loved was his six children. And I just remember kind of sitting there thinking, okay, so cars, Wendover, coffee, me. And I was talking to my husband after the funeral and after we had gotten back home and he was kind of saying, like, how'd you feel about that? Like, you know, and, and we could kind of joke about sensitive things. And he was like, I mean, you come in right after a good cup of coffee. And I said, yeah, but I don't know that it was wrong. Like, I don't know that that's not how it is. And and I was just at that point, I was really starting to see things that I had seen. Like, I saw what I had ar- always known, but like couldn't have it verified. I couldn't verify it, but I knew it. I saw it. Like all of these things started to come together for me. Um, And then when my mom passed away, uh, we were going through her house, getting it ready to sell. Just, you know, I mean, that's such an arduous task. And we're going through all of this. And I remember we're down in her family room. And my mom, like I said, she she was a school teacher. She was an educator at heart. And we're going through, so she had tons of books, so many books. And um, we're going through books and figuring out if any of us want them or most of them were just kind of donating to Goodwill. 
But my brother was across the room from me, right, at this bookshelf, and he picks up this book, and it's a, it's a you know thin book. It's kind of a smaller book, all, all white, right, totally a white color. And he picks it up, and he goes, what is this? What's this book, right? Because it has no writing on it, and there's no title. There's no anything like that. And he picks it up, and he says, what is this? And I look up, and I go, oh, I know what that is. And he's like, what's that? And I said, it's the S.A. White book. And, you know, my brother's like, I don't know what that is. And I'm like, well, kind of like AA, and they have their book, like Sexaholics. Like, this is their big book. And he was like, why does mom have it? And I just said, because dad was a sex addict. And he was like, dad was a sex addict? And I said, oh, I don't know, but mom must have thought that he was. And uh, it was just one of these, like, so again... I can't confirm most of these things with any person. But when I go inside to the feelings that I have and I get in touch with my feelings and I get and I start talking about the stories and I start to put in what I saw, I can trust my own truth and it makes sense to me. And I'm like, yeah, that, yes, yes, those things are real. And I remember the first time I said like with my siblings we were around and I said something like well dad was an alcoholic and my one brother looked at me and he was like you know that and I said well yes but no like I never saw my dad drink um I never but like if you're going to Wendover every day and gambling and he's a smoker like doesn't alcohol fit in that mix and I said and it just it makes sense like the Sunday that he was home and had to go to church with us and be around us all day. You know, he couldn't drink, he couldn't smoke, he couldn't chew, he couldn't get his coffee. Like, he was a beast to live with. Like, these things make sense to me. Um, and at the time, I know several of my siblings had a little bit, like, it. they weren't quite comfortable with me saying those things. Um, I, I think now, it's been about 10 years, 10 and a half years since my dad passed away. I don't think my siblings are uncomfortable with me speaking about those things. I think several of my siblings have come to the same conclusion. Um, but I, I wanted to just use that personal story as an example. I, I just think there's so many things when we go back and we look at our external environment and as an adult, we can now start to tell the story and we can start to share what we do know. And maybe some of that is coming together like with our siblings or maybe aunts and uncles and talking about like, what do you know, right? And we start to put these things together. And then we check it out kind of with our internal landscape. And we start to say, how does this feel to me? What's true about this? What can I trust about this? Um, I think we start to break apart those family stories and we can start to see them for the way that they are. And we can start to have a further understanding of the story that I was born into that was already playing out that I had really no control over and maybe didn't even really know the whole story. But I was born into that story and I was profoundly impacted by that story. So I wanted to just share that with you if you're in that place in your recovery. Um, keep going. Keep trusting yourself. Keep digging and keep exposing your truth. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story till it's finished. 
You can share your story with us on our Facebook page, Healing Paths, Inc., or on our website, www.thanksforsharingpodcast.com. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. At the end of another episode, we want to remind you that nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Remember the prayer of the perfectionist. Help me remember I can't do it all. Help me to take things one step at a time and that the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I'm learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone, that I can ask for help. Help me to re- to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.